When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A shout out to Stamps.com for supporting this episode and being an awesome company. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. For a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, head over to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in SMART. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, where we have conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. How are you guys doing out there? I'm good, thanks. No, them. I'm oh, sorry. Them. Hope you guys are having a good day and ready to take on this week. Most of you listen early on in the week, so we're going to get you pumped. As you go to work, you want to think about how can you really make some change? How can you invoke your inner CEO? And today, we are talking with Adam Bryant. And Adam, really cool guy, he conducts interviews with CEOs for his corner office business, if you will. You know, it's called corner office. It it appears in the New York Times and on NewYorkTimes.com. He compiles these interviews with some of the top CEOs in the world and really gives you some amazing insight on how they succeed, how these companies run. And when we mean success, it's not just make a lot of money. It's how do you take a culture and really grow it. What makes certain businesses unique, certain cultures unique? It was very insightful. And by the way, his book, which is pretty incredible, is called Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation. Adam has a pretty extensive background. He's had many roles at the New York Times, including business reporter, deputy business editor, deputy national editor, and senior editor for features. I mean, he's been all over the place, writing, editing, reporting. Pretty interesting path he's taken. So we're going to turn it over here to Adam in a little bit. I wanted to have one little plug. If you guys like this, head over to chrisstemp.com and sign up for the newsletter because I will be launching my newest podcast any day now. It's called Thrive that John is helping me out with. It's very similar, but we're taking on topics that are a little more life development, career-oriented So if you like that kind of stuff, head over. If not, you know where to find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. I think you owe Smart People Podcast some advertising money now. We're going to turn it over to Adam, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Let us know what you think. We've gotten some awesome emails recently. We really appreciate you guys reaching out. People saying, hey, I can help with this. This is my expertise. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Everybody that has emailed saying, hey, I want to write for free on your site or I want to help with UX and UI, you guys are Awesome. Yeah, really Absolutely that. awesome. Thank you so much. So here we go with Adam Bryant. All right, Adam, well, let's go ahead and get started. Thanks again so much for being on the show. 
There's so many things I want to talk to you about. The first being this corner office brand that you've built has been extremely successful. I think I have an idea of reasons why, but I'd kind of like to get your take on it, where the idea came from. Sure. Uh, So I was a business reporter at the Times for many years uh, through the 1990s and covered a lot of different industries, a lot of companies. um, And over that time, I interviewed a lot of CEOs. uh, And what dawned on me over time, it it sort of sounds obvious to say it, um, but what dawned on me is that CEOs are pretty much always interviewed in the business press as strategists. Uh, Basically, what's your growth plan and what's the competitive landscape? And that's kind of it when you really boil down the architecture of most uh, CEO interviews in the business press. Um, And, you know, there's a big audience for those articles. I enjoyed doing them. I learned a lot. But I just found personally the more time I spent with CEOs, the more I found myself wanting to ask them really simple questions like, how do you do what you do? And then I became a manager myself about a dozen years ago and discovered firsthand the joys and challenges of managing people. And that made me want to ask uh, these CEOs, how did you learn to do what you do? Because I think people have this notion of uh, CEOs that they were born leaders from the time they were in diapers. They knew exactly how to do it. And I thought, well, that can't be right. Um, So I, I rolled all that up into a very simple what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and literally never asked them a single question about their business? Um, And instead, we talked about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives, uh, how they lead inside their company as opposed to how they lead in their industry, um, how they hire, what questions they ask, what advice they give to college graduates, uh, kind of those simple open-ended questions. And that was basically the initial premise when I launched Corner Office in March 2009, and that was about um, 300 interviews ago. And two books uh, later, and uh, I'm teaching a leadership course at Columbia now, and I hear from a lot of professors around the country and business schools who tell me that they're now using Corner Office uh, almost as a case study method in leadership styles uh, in their in their own leadership courses. So uh, I think I'm a teacher trapped inside a journalist's body, so it's, <laughs> uh, it's all very gratifying. Now, when you mention they're using Corner Office in their teachings, could you explain, especially for those that don't know, what you mean by you know the corner office, like the approach, the writing, the term? What do sure. you mean by that? Yeah, so um, it's essentially a Q&A format. Uh, I typically interview CEOs for about 90 minutes. Um, I get the interviews transcribed. They usually come back between ten and 15,000 words, and I essentially boil it down to about 1,100 words. Uh, and I'm really looking for three or four uh, takeaways, just great stories, insights, uh, tips, the kind of thing that people can go back to work after reading the next day and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Um, and so they're very quick reads, but, uh, you know, if you like cooking metaphors, I, I sort of take the reduction sauce approach. I boil off all the water and, um, you know, make it a fast 1100 word read, but, uh, you know, and I just get tremendous feedback from readers. Um, I've also come to appreciate, over time, just how personal leadership is. Uh, And I get reminded of that every week because what I've come to understand is that the interviews that I do, they're essentially like Rorschach tests, you know, classic inkblot tests where everybody reads them very differently. I've come to appreciate that if I gave uh, the same interview to 20 different people, you'd have a whole spectrum of reactions. Two people would say, I would never want to work for that person. Um, two people would say, 
you know, I would work for that person tomorrow and then you'd get a range in the middle. Um, so again, as, as, as much as people love to put kind of theoretical and conceptual frameworks around leadership, and I understand why, um, at the end of the day, I think leadership is, is personal and we kind of all have to make sense of it for ourselves based on our own personalities, the personalities of the people we're working with, the context, uh, um, you know, it's very different leadership style if you're working uh, at a fast-growing startup or a legacy company that's declining and in desperate need of a turnaround. So um, those are some of the things that I've learned from doing this for about four years now. It's interesting. I actually would love to hear your take on the different types of leadership or even how you define it, just because I know that I read an article the other day it was saying how – how, you, how to get a job at Google, how to get hired at Google. And one of the pieces of advice from the guy who used to do hiring there, he said they look for leaders, but the way he described it was you don't have to always be looking for people to follow you or to be the first one in line. It's just when you know or when you have a great idea, when you think there's a better way of working through something, you're willing to kind of say, hey, I'll, I'll take the reins on this. I'll listen to everybody else, but I think I can lead the charge. And then as it evolves, perhaps stepping back and letting other people utilize their strengths. I thought that was a really interesting take on leadership. Yeah, and, and that was Laszlo Bach at Google, who I've uh, interviewed a couple of times myself. They have fascinating insights. And to me, one of the things that um, uh, some of his ideas about what they're looking for uh, in people they hire at Google, it points to the fact that a lot of leadership is about paradoxes and finding the, the balance point between, you know, two contradictory or opposing forces. And one of the, well, a couple of points that um, Laszlo Bach called out, uh, you know, one was humility and the other one was ownership, you know, and I think humility is a really important word and um, it's kind of a close cousin to self-awareness. You You have to be keenly aware of what you don't know, um, and that puts you much more in a learning mindset. But also, you take ownership, where you you've got that confidence to say, you know, I've got this, I'm going to run with it. And I think it's really finding that sweet spot uh, between those two things. I heard a great expression from one of the CEOs I interviewed, where he says he they they like people with desirable self confidence. Um, and I think that phrase captures that sweet spot between humility and, and confidence. There's, there's a sweet spot right in the middle of that um, that really separates people, and, and not everyone has it. John and I were talking before the interview about how so many people want to get into the minds of CEOs. And we were, we were kind of wondering or hypothetically asking, why CEOs? You know, why are so many people fascinated by what they do? Well, I think the fascination stems from the fact that true leaders are rare in our society and, and the um, combination of talents and skills and qualities that you have uh, to be a leader uh, are pretty rare. And everybody's, you know, all the leaders I've interviewed, they're incredibly different, but there are some patterns. Um, and I think there is sort of endless fascination with what is it that help these people rise up to the top um, and what makes them tick. One of the things I've learned over the years of uh, sort of playing in this sandbox um, is that a lot of people go around to successful people like CEOs 
Um, and because they're curious about them, they always ask uh, some variation of the simple question, what leads to success? And what I've come to appreciate over the years is that that's not a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason it's not a very good question is because you get pretty predictable answers that aren't very insightful. You're going to get some variation of hard work and perseverance and passion, and um, none of those answers are going to make you fall out of your chair and slap your forehead. Um, and one of the things I did with the first book I wrote called The Corner Office is I really tried to ask a more specific question, which is what is it about these CEOs I'm interviewing? What qualities do they have that explains why they get promoted all the way to the corner office? And in other words, what qualities do they have in slightly greater abundance than the people two or three levels down um, who didn't get those jobs? So that, you know, if you frame the question that way, that takes a lot of the stuff that, you know, comes out as predictable answers and essentially makes that the table stakes. So you assume everybody's hardworking and perseveres and all that. And then you ask the, well, then what? What are the qualities? And I found five qualities that emerge from my interviews. And to be clear, I, I don't write books starting out with a silver bullet theory and then look for proof. I just do sort of connect the dot exercises, looking for patterns in the interviews. And it's just a couple of examples. Um, one of the, uh, the qualities of what I call passionate curiosity, which is really just kind of a relentlessly questioning mind. You're curious about people, their backstories, how things work, how they can, how they can be made to work better. And to me, I think this is one of the sort of head fakes in our society about CEOs, because if you look at the covers of glossy business magazines, you know, the pose, the CEO he might have his arms folded. And <laughs> the, the whole notion is like, I can see around corners, right? I've got all the answers. And what I've come to appreciate um, is that the best CEOs, they don't have all the right answers. They have all the right questions. Uh, and they ask the precisely the good, dumb questions, the, the simple, smart questions that can take their companies into whole new directions. Um, so that's uh, one quality. Another one, just as another example, is what I call a simple mindset, which is the ability to take a lot of complicated stuff and boil it down to the one or two or three things that really matter. And, you know, we can argue all day long about whether CEOs are overpaid or not, but I I do believe they earn their pay uh, on those days where they might be running a big multinational corporation and they can stand up in front of everybody and say, these are the three things we're going to focus on this year. This is how we're going to measure our progress. Uh, and that's a rare skill. Not everybody can do that. Um, and I get constant reminders in my interviews about the importance of simplicity. And if you look at some of the brain science studies, we generally can't remember more than three things, maybe four. Uh, more than that, you need a great advertising jingle behind it to help you remember it, you know, to all beef patty, special sauce, etc. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I get reminders of the importance of simplicity sometimes because I often ask CEOs if they have gone through the exercise of codifying the values of their company. And oftentimes they'll say yes, and I say I'd love to hear them, and they'll go, we have eight. Um, and at that point I make a silent $20 bet with myself that they're not going to remember them all. Um, and I usually win that bet. Uh, and it's pretty striking that if the CEO can't remember their own values, how can they expect their employees to? I always wonder this because you mentioned the leadership traits of CEOs 
throughout all your hundreds of interviews and, and research with these CEOs, do you think that they are born with these leadership traits or do you think that they pick these leadership traits up as they go you know, throughout their career? What were your takeaways, I guess, in that aspect? I think, you know, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think leadership in many ways is, is learned just through experience. And I think you can speed up the learning curve of experience. And in some ways, that's kind of the contribution I'm trying to make, that if you get the wisdom of 300 mentors and the things they've learned, that will speed people along their learning curve. Um, but I do think there are some things that are people are born with couple of the qualities that really strike me in all my interviews is just how much drive these people have. I mean, if you indulge the me metaphor of, you know, we all have an engine inside of us. And with these CEOs, the, the engines, it's like a V12 and it is going all the time. Um, they're just kind of always on. They have, seem to have an incredible amount of energy and stamina. Um, you know, a lot of them fulfill the sort of cartoonish notions of they really do get up at four o'clock and get a jump on the work day. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is they really, if you'll indulge a different metaphors, they ring every experience they have, no matter what the experience is, they kind of ring it like a wet towel and just get every last drop of insight and lessons out of it. So, uh, you know, you might talk to one person, they say, well, when I was in high school, you know, I just worked at McDonald's after after school um, and not think anything of it. And then I'll interview one of these CEOs and they say, I worked at McDonald's after school during high school and I, I learned these six things doing it. So, again, it's just it, it's not so much that you need that secret formula of experiences to become a CEO. I think uh, it's really just what you make of the experiences you have. Now, after you've interviewed so many, I know, as you mentioned, they have different personalities. I'm not going to ask you to say names by any means, but there has to have been times when you've walked out of the interview or whatever it might be and go, I, I can't believe this guy runs a company or this woman runs a company. Does that, has that happened? It's happened a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I guess in those situations, do you assume that, you might have missed something or is it usually just, you know, there's also other ways of getting to the top? You know, part of it depends. I mean, it's a really interesting question. Part of it depends, I think, on the industry they're working in, because there are some mm. businesses that at the end of the day are kind of the opposite of rocket science. You know, that um, there are some industries that don't change a lot. They're super simple. And if you have relentless focus on a few key things, um, you can succeed. And, uh, and I think that's in some ways, you know, maybe why they're successful because they, they don't overthink things right. and they just keep that relentless focus on one, one or two or three measures. So, you know, but I have to say it's an incredibly small number of people. Right. Uh, and I work really hard to choose people to interview who I think are going to be interesting and thoughtful and have clever, um, clever, not in the tricky sense, but, you know, refreshingly new insights on uh, leadership and management. And, you know, so I look for the kind of people who, you know, I, I got to 
pitch right. from one company about their chief operating officer who makes all new managers participate in hula hoop contests um, <laughs> on a stage in front of the staff. Um, and I thought, boy, I've never heard that before. And it's it's a really interesting idea because what she told me, she said it's a great screen because if everybody looks silly hula hooping, right? Sure. So if you can't laugh at yourself uh, and do that kind of thing, you don't want to work at that company. Um, so it's a great kind of self-selection mechanism. Sure. So I'm always looking for those kinds of things um, that say, boy, this person uh, is really thoughtful about it. What's the one place that's worse than the DMV? The post office. So why are you still going when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with stamps.com. You can buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer or printer. How easy is that? Why would you do anything else? And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. You can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. I know you guys have heard me talk about this small nonprofit that I work for. I am the VP of marketing, but I'm also the mailman. So I ship out about four to six packages every week. Once I found out about stamps.com, it saved me at least an hour or two a week. All you have to do is plug the free scale they send you into your computer and select the mail class. Stamps.com will instantly calculate and print the correct postage. You slap it on the box and you put it on your front porch. The mailman does the rest of the work. Right now, use our promo code SMART for this special offer. One, a no-risk trial. Two, a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in SMART. That's stamps.com. Enter SMART. Hey guys, help smart people podcasts stay free to download by completing this short anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes. Your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered into an ongoing monthly raffle to win a hundred dollar Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com slash smart. That's www.podsurvey.com slash smart to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks a lot. Well, and we have a copy of your newest book, and the, you list your interviews for this one. Going through, it is a who's who. I cannot imagine. John and I love interviewing people. That's why we do this show. We get our episodes transcribed. We try to pick out a lot of the things. I've learned so much. And then I look at the people you've talked to. I'm like, damn. I mean, these people. <laughs> so anyways, it's, it's really great to be able to talk to you about it. And again, this might be a tough question, but... Do any of these people jump out to you? I mean, I, I don't want you to have to play favorites, but maybe it was their story, the way they got things across to you, what they've overcome, that just sticks with you? I, I think the, uh, the best way I can answer that is in terms of what have been the biggest surprises for me. Um, and, you know, what, what has surprised me about the whole experience of doing 300 interviews that I didn't expect when I launched it? And I think the answer there comes... Um, from the things that I hear when I ask them the simple question, how do you hire? What questions do you ask? 
And uh, what I've come to appreciate is that the CEOs in some ways have to be like master psychologists because by the time somebody gets into their office for an interview, that person has been coached and scripted and trained and they know all the right answers to all the questions. You know, my big, biggest weakness is I care too much and I work too hard. <laughs> that, nobody buys that anymore, right? <laughs> no, but people still try it. Yeah. You'd, you'd be amazed. Um, so they've heard all this stuff before, and one of them said it just starts sounding like Muzak after a while. So what they have to do is come up with what I call bank shot questions, which is how do you ask something to get around the, you know, the carefully crafted facade that people want to present? Um, and I have to say, you know, 300 interviews later, I'm still hearing things I've never heard before and just really smart, insightful questions. And that's where I've been some of the surprise. I mean, just a couple of examples. I interviewed Tony Shea, the head of Zappos, and he says he asked people um, on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? <laughs> and, and I think that's a great question because, you know, it works on a few levels. One, it signals to the job candidate that, you know, Zappos is a weird culture and we want you to bring your weird uh, in here, bring all of you. Um, but how weird are you? And it's a great screen there. Uh, he asks another interesting question where um, he'll say, uh, what is the biggest misperception that people have about you? So dramatic pause. And it turns out that's just the setup. So once you, un once you answer that, then he says, well, what's the difference between perception and misperception? Hmm. Interesting. And again, works on a whole bunch of levels, right? It gets a how self-aware are you? Um, it's also a good screen because if somebody says, you know, a lot of people think I'm a, a total jerk, but I'm not, um, then what's the difference between perception and misperception? <laughs> and you go, well, you just come off as a jerk. So <laughs> yeah, Exactly. I love uh, it. You know, and even on the question of weaknesses, because, you know, CEOs want an authentic answer to that question. Um, I've got a little bit of a beef with the, you know, what are your weaknesses? Because the construct of the question is, it's as if you're supposed to say, well, I've got this bum leg, you know, like there's, mm -hmm. I've got this thing about me, there's literally nothing I can do about it. Um, and I don't think that's the way a lot of people operate. So I really love this one CEO's approach to it, where he'll say to people, hey, do you think you're going to be different five years from now than you are today? And People say, of course, I'm going to be five different, mm -hmm. different five years from now than today. And he say, well, how do you think you're going to be different? Um, and it puts much more of a positive spin on it and essentially asking like, OK, where do you want to get better? And what do you see as the things you want to build on? Or, you know, if you've got the equivalent of a, of a weak arm, you know, you want to strengthen it so that you're balanced. And to me, that's a much better question. That um, is. That's genius. Yeah. I, I mean, I love those. In your, in your last book, which was a bestseller, it's the one we've kind of talked a little bit more about here. It's definitely more geared towards leadership. And not that your newest book isn't, but I love the fact that you talk about innovation. So it's creating innovation, which, again, is leadership in some fashion. But I'm interested, especially because John and I talk to a lot of authors, innovation seems to be uh, the new kind of thing that people are trying to figure out. What made you look at innovation specifically with your new book, Quick and Nimble? Sure. Um, I guess a couple of points to, to start off with. One is I tend to see innovation um, not as 
sort of workflow or process or, you know, take five people, stick them in a garage with two pizzas and do creative things. Um, I believe that everybody in the in any company, in any organization has to contribute to making the entire company innovative because that's the new normal we're in, right? The pace of change is so fast um, and everybody has to be looking at their own jobs and their colleagues and the broader company's work and saying, how can we make this more efficient, better, come up with great ideas? So that's one of the places that I start from, that you've got to get the culture right. And culture is really just about the relationships that everybody has with each other uh, at a company or nonprofit or whatever. So that's point one. The, the, the book really, if I sort of go back upstream to where it started, um, it was with something that uh, one of the CEOs I interviewed said. He, he said, we want to be the largest small company in our space. And it really gave me pause, and I thought a lot about that. And, of course, he means largest in terms of revenues and profits and smallest in terms of holding on to that startup feel. And again, that notion really stayed with me. And I just started turning that over my head. And it's like, well, what does that mean? And then how do you do that? And what is culture? And the funny thing about culture is that if if the two of you guys and I stood in front of a whiteboard and said, what's culture, we could probably put 100 things on it. And every one of them would be true at some level, right? Because culture is one of those really amorphous things. So just like with my first book, it, you know, I'm big believer in the art of asking the good, dumb question or, you know, asking the right question. So I, I tweaked the question a little more and framed it this way, which is what are the biggest drivers of culture? The things that, if done well, have an outsized positive impact and if done badly or not at all, have an outsized negative impact. And so that was my sort of opening question. And then I just sifted through more than 200 interviews looking for insights that helped me answer that question. Um, and I got the list down to, you know, the first half of the book, half of the book I call setting the foundation. So it's a list of what I think are really must haves that if you're going to have an effective culture and if you have an effective culture, you're going to be more innovative. Um, so that was kind of the, the backstory of the book. As I mentioned earlier, John and I do something similar with our transcripts we're in the process of kind of going through a, a similar process. And, I, and this might be a selfish question to ask, but do you recommend that idea of kind of start off with a question and then dig through on how to find the answers? I, I think it's a bit of a balance. I mean, I, the way it's worked for me is that I've, um, with the first book, I did close to 100 interviews, and then I started hearing these echoes and themes and patterns, and that led to some kind of half-baked questions and half-baked notions. And then, so to me, it's about hitting that balance where you don't want to start off with like a theory. You know, I think mm -hmm. that business is like, you know, an ocean with a dolphin. And then you just look for, you know, any proof out in the world that <laughs> proves your theory of oceans and dolphins, because, you know, there's a lot of books out there, and I like that. I don't think they add a ton of value. Sure. Um, but you can't. So I prefer to let the, the theories emerge from the raw material. But to, at least for in my experience, there's that, you know, you start hearing patterns, you start hearing themes, and then you find yourself in the interviews probing on those on those notions a little bit more. Um, so you're kind of pressure testing these ideas. And if you get richer answers, then you start asking more about it. So it's it's really a balance um, for me. And then 
by the time I get down to uh, starting to work on the book, I'm I'm very old school. I basically go to the local uh, uh, drugstore and I buy three or four or five packets of index cards. Um, and then I literally go through my interviews and I just write down little bullet points insights from uh, that I come across in the name of the CEO. And it's just sort of one phrase or something. And by the end of it, I have this very tall stack of index cards. And then I, I do this kind of sorting game. I just get a really big table and I start looking for patterns. Uh, and I'll put them in, I'll create categories um, and then I'll, all these index cards will go in each of those. And for each of my books, it's probably taken me about four go-rounds before I get it right. You know, the mm-hmm. first time you'll have too many categories, and then the second time you'll have too few or they're too general, and then you'll do it again, and you sort of go through it. So that may be more no. uh, maybe over, oversharing and more information than you want, but that's how I do it. No, I actually just looked at John and said, we're going to try that. So, I mean, I know. it's I like do. the mad scientist approach where you just scatter everything around, organize it, and then keep going through it. iterations. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Index um, cards and a big table. That's how you do it. I love it. Now, I want to get into the, the meat of quick and nimble. I have some quick and nimble tips and there's some that really jumped out to me. I know our listeners are going to just love these. I love reading them. But the the first one that I, I bet John is just dying to ask is the hazards of email. Uh-huh. And uh, John and I talk about our own work lives a lot on the show. But I have in my personal email, I have 2,936 unread emails. And yep. in my work, I have uh, three, a little over 300. And it's maddening. And so I was hoping you could kind of talk about what you found in writing this book. Sure. And to me, this is one of my this is on the list of six things, the setting the the foundation, the, you know, must haves for culture. It falls into the category of, you know, if done badly, has an outsized negative impact. And and I think email is is really bad for culture. It, it was started as this productivity tool, um, this communication tool. But I think it creates so many problems uh, the biggest one is this phrase that I heard from a CEO that things get lost in translation. Um, it's probably happened to you guys a bunch where you send one of your colleagues what you think is a super simple email. You know, the sky is blue, the ocean is deep. And you get this response back where the person completely misread it. Um, and then you start getting your back up. It's like, well, why did you think I meant that? Right. Um, and then you crack your knuckles and you roll up your sleeves and you start firing off a, a rocket back to them. And this kind of stuff goes on all the time. Um, so things get lost in translation because you can't read tone, you can't read body language. And, uh, you know, if, if you agree with me that culture is kind of the sum total of the relationships of, of colleagues, the thing about email is that it does literally nothing to build those relationships. Um, and it's much more likely to damage what, you know, what fabric there is uh, there in the first place. And the other crazy thing is that email is supposed to be this productivity tool, but um, you can chew up an entire afternoon <laughs> over some email Easily. argument that if you actually just walk down the hall and talk to your colleague, you could have worked it out in two minutes. Um, so I've heard a lot of CEOs have very explicit rules. You can't argue over email, you know. Two back and forths, and then you have to either pick up the phone, get on Skype, walk down the hall. And the other thing that I heard from one of the CEOs is that part of the problem with email is that it taps into uh, a really bad part of our brain, uh, which is the part that 
um, makes us always want to have the last word. So uh, if you get an argument with somebody, it's everybody wants to have the oh, yeah, and <laughs> shut it down. And, you know, I've also heard stories from the CEOs and I've seen it myself. You know, this loop starts and then the, the CC loop widens and then suddenly, you know, you got a scene from West Side Story with the Jets and the Sharks and, uh, you know, the CEOs have to send a note saying stop. It's crazy. And I wanted to ask if you've seen any innovation with an email because you mentioned just Skyping each other. And I don't know why I never really thought about using Skype. I used to work at a consulting firm, but it would have been so easy just to video chat with somebody as opposed to do that little email dance. But are you seeing any companies and CEOs that are really, I guess, revolutionizing email or innovating it? Um, it's more just trying to enforce a culture of, of don't use it much. Gotcha. Uh, the, it's really kind of and they find that they really have to be vigilant because people forget the rule and they have to remind them it's like stop doing this Uh, you know it's one simple thought experiment can you imagine a world where um instead of the phone being invented when it was an email being invented when it was if you actually reverse them so Hmm. back in whatever year it was when the phone was invented what if that was when email was invented and then much more recently Somebody invents something called the phone. Can you imagine how we would have reacted? It's like, wow, this phone, this thing is so much better. You can hear tone. It's so much better for communicating. It would, people would think it would be revolutionary. So in some ways, we've gone backwards in terms of using tools to communicate. I just got goosebumps. That's well, yeah, the coolest thing I've ever – Now, mean, yeah, everybody now with their smartphone, they love – text messaging and it's the same thing where now we're sending 160 or 140 characters however many texting is now where it used to be oh wow i could call somebody that's across the country and now it's eh, i just want you to hear this here's a text here you go yep and it gets to the point where when you call somebody it's like there's a little bit of surprise in their voice you know oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> didn't know you were going to answer one of the other quick and nimble tips that i wanted to bring up was the adult conversations Mm-hmm. And talking about, you know, the best managers don't let problems fester. They sit down and have conversations, you know, not worrying about giving or getting feedback because it'll turn into a battle. Can you talk about the adult conversations part of the book? Sure. I, I think most of us, and I've been guilty of this myself over the years, people literally will go out of their way to avoid having tough discussions with people. And I understand why. I mean, they're stressful. And it's amazing how the powers of rationalization kick in to avoid these things, right? I mean, you know, somebody does something and you say to yourself, ah, that was probably just a one-off. Maybe they're having a bad day. And then they do it a second time. And you go, you know, I've got 100 emails I got to get through. I'll talk to them at the end of the week. And suddenly it's Saturday. And and then you say, well, maybe I'll bring it up in the performance review nine months from now. Um, and then you do that and, and their head explodes because, you know, that's not fair to them. And maybe you completely misread the context of why they did something. And, you know, these conversations are stressful. I mean, it's a bit to me like stepping into a knife fight in a phone booth, right? You don't know how people are going to react. But what I've heard from so many companies, it's such a common theme that they really try to create this culture of, of give people feedback, give it in the moment. Um, take the pressure off it. I mean, one of the CEOs says he'll tell new employees, it's my job to give you feedback. If you do something well, I'm going to tell you. If you, there's something you do, you could do it better. You could do it better. I'm going to tell you then. And 
his point is to, to desensitize it so it's not like, oh my gosh, my boss just called me into his or her office and closed the door and now we're going to have a feedback session. And at that point, your brain lights up like your life was in danger and you're probably not going to hear anything they say uh, to begin with. Um, and the other thing, too, is that there's a there's an art to giving people feedback to avoid that problem of their head exploding and getting their back up. I heard this great expression um, about how you don't go over the net, and obviously the metaphors from tennis or volleyball, but you stay on your side of the net when you're talking about something. You never make statements that suggest you know why the person is doing something. You just talk about your reaction to it. So you don't say, for example, I've noticed you show up 20 minutes late every day and it seems like you don't care, because mm-hmm. then the person's going to say, what do you mean I don't care? How dare you? But if you say, I noticed you show up 20 minutes late every day, it makes me feel like you don't care, then the person can't argue with that. Um, And you don't get the sort of people putting their dukes up uh, ready for a fight. And it's a a subtle distinction, but um, ever since I've heard that, you know, I've done it myself with colleagues. It's actually a great trick in, you know, all our personal lives with Mm -hmm. friends and family. I've been married 27 years. It's a a great... It's a great tool for a a happy marriage, too. So the thing about the book and and the sort of playbook for culture, a lot of the things that I talk about are play out at a very human level. It's just it's about how people interact with each other and how to get um, uh, people. There's this great expression I've heard from a few CEOs where they feel like it's their job to have everybody bring their best self to work every day. And I love that expression because um, I think every one of us, whenever we go to work, we do this little thing. When we walk in the front door of the company, we metaphorically sort of do we how much of ourselves do we check at the front door? You know, your passions, your interests, your sense of humor, all that other stuff. How much do you park at the front door as you're going into work? And a lot of CEOs say it's their job to make sure you don't park anything. Um, that you bring it all into work, um, your sense of humor, your crazy ideas, um, your hobbies on the side, whatever sort of weird expertise that you might have. And I think that's a, a pretty goal, pretty good goal for leaders of any organization. That's some of the best advice. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I have, I have such a newfound like, respect for CEOs because we do have this idea of them in our mind as people who, with their arms crossed, looking off of the business cover. But in reality, they're humans, and they want their people to be humans. And that's, uh, I don't know, you kind of blew my mind today. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. And the thing about so many of the people that I've interviewed, it, it's very rare that I interview a CEO, because I always ask them when they were younger and try and get a sense of their life story. And um, I could probably count on one hand out of the 300 the number of times I heard somebody who basically said when they were younger they wanted to be a CEO. Um, most of them have had really circuitous career paths. Uh, CEOs of big businesses who started out in theater as elementary school teachers, um, movie sets, uh, laboratory scientists, uh, really interesting mix of backgrounds. Um, I've interviewed a lot of, you know, one kind of story that I love hearing from these CEOs is, uh, you know, I, I do hear a lot of the, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I was organizing all my, you know, the entire class to do X. And they were the class presidents and leaders of everything they got involved in. 
But I, I hear a lot from people who run really big, successful companies who say, yeah, I didn't do that much in high school. You know, I was so, so student, just kind of hung around after school with my friends. What about college? Yeah, I, I basically almost failed out of college. I was like a C student um, or it took me six years to get through college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And and then trying to figure out, like, what was the inflection point? What was, you know, what changed the angle to create the hockey stick for their career? Um, and those are fascinating stories for me, too, because I think in our uh, in our current day and age, um, a lot of parents want to kind of software code their kids, right? Like, if you if you do the right inputs when you're raising them, you will create a person like X. <laughs> and I think a lot of the stories that I hear um, are just kind of great reminders about how, you know, the world doesn't work that way and everybody's got their own interesting paths. I know that we're going over on time here and this could be just the, a short answer from you, but one of the things we talk a lot about on our show is for people who are interested in, say, it, it is theater or art or writing or something like that, but they think, oh, well, you know, I can't be successful at that. I can't make a living. Having mentioned the fact that these CEOs do have this background oftentimes that differs, do you have advice? Have you written on that? Do you have any strong thoughts on what people should do if they are questioning their passions versus what's realistic? This could probably take us for another hour, but to me, the short <laughs> version um, of the answer is that the, the most common advice you hear from people is, you know, this notion of like follow your passion. Um, and I actually think that's not very helpful advice because if you know what your passion is, you don't need somebody to tell you to follow it. Um, and most people, I was certainly like this, you know, when I was 18 or 20, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think you discover your passions as you get involved and do different jobs. Uh, and I'm sure you guys have found this in your, your own lives. So, you know, I think it's good you start with the theory, you think of something that makes your heart, you know, um, skip a little faster. And, and so you try that. And um, it's interesting, too, because when I talk to startup CEOs, I've heard a lot of them say, you know, when you get out of college, go work for a big company. And you don't expect to hear that from a startup CEO. But they say you learn a lot of lessons at a big company. You learn what it's like to have a boss, maybe how to be a boss so that you know that when you go to a startup. And so it's Every time I've heard somebody say some variation of follow your passion, um, I've heard another person say it's okay to play it safe. It's okay to be practical and pragmatic and do those things um, where you're just going to get some experience. Um, and I guess finally I've heard some CEOs, their life advice is it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do when you get out of college. You know, go sell wholesale jewelry. Go do anything um, but if you're built a certain way, you're going to you're going to learn something from that about yourself and you're going to pick up new skills and, you know, you're going to find your way in life. I love it. I love I really do. I think all of those will hit home for a lot of people. Adam, thanks so much for being on the show. I know we took up a little extra of your time. Your new book is incredible, and we only touched on a few of the tips, so people are just going to have to go check out Quick and Nimble to, to learn more about what you've uncovered over these interviews. I wanted to see if there's anywhere specifically that our listeners could go, whether it's someplace you write, and to basically keep up with what you're doing and, and, and learn more about it. 
Uh, well, my personal website is adambryantbooks.com, all one word. And if you just Google Corner Office, you can find the archive at uh, nytimes.com with all the 300 interviews. And again, most of them are about 1,100 words. And uh, uh, I've heard from a lot of readers over the years that they start reading them and they get addicted to them. So hopefully there's a few more addicts out there. I can imagine. I definitely can. All right. Well, thanks so much. And best of luck with this. I, I recommend this book. To everyone, we got the you know the advanced copy, and it's fantastic. So great job, and thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Great questions too, guys. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, Adam. Have a good one. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Adam Bryant. Whether you're on your walk, commuting from work, or driving your commercial truck or whatever vehicle it Ooh, is. I like that. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of emails from guys that are commercial truck drivers saying, hey, I love listening to audiobooks and learning while I drive 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Keep these podcasts coming. They're they're fantastic. So well, if, if we can keep those guys awake at the wheel. Oh, perfect. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like if they can learn while driving, doing their – oh, man. But, guys, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Use that Amazon banner anytime that you're shopping. And, actually, I received an email asking how to rate our show. We always ask to oh, rate yeah. on iTunes. But if you don't have iTunes, I think the second best place is heading over to Stitcher.com and finding Smart People Podcast over there and leaving a rating there. Uh, Don't forget, also, ChrisStemp.com is a pretty cool place. Sign up for the newsletters. I've only sent out about four in the couple months, so I don't send out many. But the podcast will be launching soon, and you want want to listen to that. It's going to be cool. It's going to be almost as cool as Smart People. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. 